1: Who's that one person in, in your little corner of the world that you're consistently and constantly praying for? that they would come to saving faith in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Is it a son, a daughter, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister? Is it a coworker, a classmate? As you're seated, you take out or turn on your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 9. That's where we're going to land in a few minutes. I want to jump right in. My wife is the artist in our family, but I do love works of art. I especially love sculptures that have been created by a master craftsman. Perhaps that's because the Bible talks of us as being clay in the hands of a potter. And I I look at my life and I, I, I keep wondering, God, when are you going to make a masterpiece out of me? Maybe that's how you feel as well. But the truth is, according to God's word in the book of Ephesians, we are God's poema. We are God's poem. We are his masterpiece. That is who we are. I've had the privilege on several occasions to visit Rodin's Museum or Rodin's Garden in the city of Paris. It's one of my favorite things to do by God's grace I'll be there again next month with a group from our church. You may be familiar with this sculptor because of one of his most well-known works of art called The Thinker. The Thinker. You can go into Rodin's garden and you can see this masterpiece, this incredible picture, this sculpture that takes up so much of the space there. Another one of his works of art is called The Hand of God. I love this. It's said that in this sculpture, he's really shouting out to the master sculptor, Michelangelo. And he's envisioning the hand of God, perhaps, as he's creating from the dust, Adam. The truth is, the hand of God creates all that is. I think of that sculptor, and I think about the hand of God. And I think about the questions I have about the hand of God, Do you ever stop to think about the hand of God? Why he chooses to move where he does? Why does it seem that he touches some people in the way that he does? I've lived all of my life around the things of God, so there's no mistake that it's unusual. But sometimes God will just show up and impact an individual's life in such a way it's so clearly God. And you wonder, why then, Lord? Or perhaps God will move in a church and and you'll see this church begin to grow and see the things of God manifest in a mighty way. And, And as a pastor, you may look at the things you're doing and say, we're doing the same things. Why there, God? Or Let's make it more personal. Maybe you've seen someone blessed with affluence or success or health, and you look at your life and you see all those things are missing, and you say, why their God? Why them? What we're really saying though is why not me? Our, our world has taken attention in recent days as the hand of God began to move again on a college campus, Asbury University in Kentucky. A move of God took place there in 1970. That move sparked God's movement around our country, which eventually landed at Azusa Pacific University on the West Coast. And we began to see what is now known as the Jesus Movement. Hippies began to come to Christ and were changed in massive numbers. And many of the great spiritual leaders and evangelists and pastors of this generation that are now nearing the end of their lives and their ministries came to Christ in that movement. And here's what we learned when that great revival broke out. Much of the existing church was not ready. We weren't open to those kinds of people inside our walls. We didn't like their music and the way they acted it, it seemed unkempt it, it seemed disorganized it, it seemed perhaps maybe this was not of god and, and and yet that seems again to be what's happening at this college campus in kentucky my friend bill Elliott visited asbury earlier this week and one of his local news stations decided to report on what's going on there. I want you to watch this short video.
0: People here in Arkansas, driving hours away to a college campus in Kentucky, just to witness what they say is a miracle in the works. You may have seen it in the national headlines or maybe on social media. It's called the Asbury Revival. Our Samantha Boyd spoke with several from here in Little Rock who made the trip this week to see what this is all about and Samantha, this is literally just taken off.
3: Yeah, Kevin, it certainly has. This revival has brought in people from all over the world, but it started small with just a few students wanting to pray and worship after a chapel service at Asbury University. The people I talked to say that's the beauty of it all. It started out ordinary, but it's having an impact unlike anything they've ever seen.
1: Real Christianity,
0: people are drawn to that like crazy. It, it changes your life.
3: What began as a mandatory chapel service at Asbury University in Kentucky more than a week ago... It
1: very well could accelerate into the next great awakening in our nation.
3: ...has turned into a massive movement, viral on social media and making national news. Arkansas pastor Bill Ellis just went last week to see it all firsthand.
2: It's not crazy. It's not weird. It's just sweet
1: and pure.
3: For 24 hours a day, for nine days straight... People from all over the world have gathered together in that small Kentucky town to pray, worship, listen to ordinary people's testimonies, and read scripture. It doesn't make sense why people would be coming to what it is, other than it has to be God living in some very unusual way. Catherine Mack, Jack McFessel, and David Legg are there together now, coming from Arkansas. Thousands of people lined up. To get into the chapel, and then all the overflow places are all full. It was caught an inter- international attention of many people who
2: are hungering for something similar in in their own nation.
3: Leg is originally from Ireland. He says the revival is spreading to his home territory.
2: How do we get out of this? Do we have to go to
1: Asbury? No, God's here.
3: After decades of prayer, Elif believes that movement is coming right here to Arkansas.
1: And we have cried out for 25 years, for a quarter of a decade.
0: that God would send something like this to our city,
1: to central Arkansas. He's and I believe we're going to see it. You
3: know. Elif says the last time he saw something like this was in the 70s with a spiritual awakening all over the country. He experienced it firsthand at Washtenaw Baptist University in Arkadelphia. This week he met with the president of OBU who's anxious to see it happen on campus.
1: Hi, I'm Paul Purvis, the lead pastor of Mission Hill Church right here in Tampa Bay. Thanks for taking the time to listen And you can make that gift by going to missionhill.org and clicking on the banner that says The Barnabas Effect. That will direct you to a simple way that you can give right there online. Thanks again for listening to The Barnabas Effect today. And now we continue with our message. What moves the hand of God? I know this. I I want the hand of God on my life. I want the hand of God on this ministry. I want the hand of God on my family. I want the hand of God on His church. And I believe in the book of Romans, in chapter 9, really the Apostle Paul is addressing the movement of the hand of God, that which we may not fully understand, but that which we can embrace. Now, I want to remind you very quickly about what Romans is all about, because as a church, we've journeyed through this for many months. We're picking it back up in chapter 9, but we started in chapter 1. Do you remember That statement of the Apostle Paul in chapter 1, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's the desire of God, that we live our life so full of faith that the gospel exudes from us. And like you heard in that news report, the, the burning gospel in us draws others to see the fire that is at work within us. But here's the problem. We don't start out that way naturally. In fact, in Romans 3, it says, It's written, There is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. He goes on to say in verse 22 The righteousness is given. Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. So what happens? How do we go forward seeking to burn with the things of God? Recognizing that on our own we are unrighteous. Romans 5, it says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Most of us who've gathered here have declared that we've been justified by faith. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ, God made it just as if we've never sinned. He gave us peace with God. How did he do that? Verse 8 told us, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us that's the hope that we have to proclaim. Those of us who know Christ, that's the message we have for the world. That's why these seats should always be filled because we have news that transforms everybody regardless of what they've been through. But here's our problem. We're like the Apostle Paul. We're spiritually schizophrenic. You remember what he said in Romans 7? I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, If I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin living in me that does it. So what do we do? How do we go forward? How do we even cry out for the hand of God to move in our life? We thank God for Romans 8, which says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you thankful for that truth, church? Why? It says in verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and to Him we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In the same way, The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, it says in verse 26. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No, it says in verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that brings us to three of the most challenging chapters in all of the Bible, Romans 9, 10, and 11. most pastors try to figure out ways to skip over these chapters it's easy to preach romans 8 it begins with no condemnation it ends with no separation i mean this is just exciting encouraging and good news but the truths of romans 9 and 10 and 11 they call attention in our soul I remind you, from the beginning, we've learned that Romans is a book about our salvation. It's called a book of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And these chapters are what go to the heart of how we are saved. And and as a result, there's been a lot of confusion and a lot of debate and a lot of time spent up here in our heads just trying to think through and often fight through what these verses mean. So as a result, church leaders and church people have disagreed and argued and debated these chapters for a long time. At least since the 4th century. So here's what I want you to understand. I'm not even the smartest guy in the room. I'm probably not going to answer all your questions today. I'm certainly not going to resolve what has been a tension. For thousands of years. But I do want to help you embrace the tension. I want to take you to the chapter we'll end on in a couple of weeks, Romans 11. Romans 11 and verse 33. Listen to the Word of God. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God? Who should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What is Paul saying in Romans 11? He's saying, what moves the hand of God? How does this whole thing work? Who are we? And as I read those verses, some things jump out that if I were you, I would jot down just to guide our discussion as we seek the wisdom of the Lord. Number one, it's okay to express that some things are impossible to understand. You okay with that? Paul says, how unsearchable. One translation literally says how impossible. I I want to acknowledge that I serve a God that is bigger than me. I'm okay not having him completely figured out. I don't have to put my God in a box. And so that's where I'm going to start from that place of understanding and and the reason is is because of what it says next. Some things don't need to be understood. Did did you know for a lot of years scientists thought the whole universe revolved around the earth? And then they figured out, ah, there's a lot bigger universe and a lot more universes. And, oh, we may have gotten this thing wrong. Well, I've noticed a lot of people think the earth revolves around them. And so I'm here to tell you, according to God's Word, what we just read, that's not the case. And you don't have to be the one who solves all the problems in the world. Some things are okay not being understood. But thirdly, one thing we understand is that everything was created to point to God, to give Him glory. Everything was created, including you, to give God glory. So as I seek the face of God and I cry out for the hand of God to move in my life, what I want is that to take place in such a way that he receives greater glory i want my faith understanding and i i want the way that i live out these truths that i've studied in god's word and i want this knowledge that i've uh, obtained i want it to reflect my desire to give god glory so what's the big picture in, in these verses we're going to just read through really quickly and i'm going to make a couple comments about it. here's the big picture According to Scripture, God must choose us to be a part of his family. That's just the way it is. In fact, Jesus gave us a clue into that when he looked at his disciples and he said, Time out, guys. I want to make sure you understand. You didn't choose me. I chose you. But that was not new. That's the way God talked to his people all throughout the Old Testament. They were his chosen ones he does the choosing but what makes that confusing if that's all scripture said that would be easy right we would understand the hand of god just kind of floats through existence and touches whatever he wants to and doesn't have anything to do with us but this passage also teaches that we must choose god if we're to be a part of his family he has authority but we have responsibility and then we have tension Because we think, how how does that work? How do we embrace this God who is sovereign, who knows all that is, but says that he created us in his image with this freedom of will to make choices that impact our destiny? Does that mean that through our prayers we can cry out and we can move the hand of God? professor j robertson mcquilk said it's it's easier to go to a consistent extreme than to stay in the center of biblical intention and and that's what a lot of people do on this issue and others they go to extremes and so you have folks that really want to fight about this because they think they've got it all figured out and and let me just tell you some of the dangers of those two extremes if if this is entirely just about us if this is just a free will choice what does that say well it places the burden of salvation holy on me that i'm completely responsible for whether or not i'm going to spend forever with god in heaven secondly it denies or minimizes my depravity it takes away those verses we've already read in romans it says there's not one righteous no not one for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god it even suggests necessarily that we can lose our salvation because if there's something I can do to earn it, there necessarily must be something I can do to lose it. Which, by the way, in our church, just so that you know, we hold to that doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We, we believe, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians, when the Holy Spirit of God grips you, when Christ comes into your life, he seals you until that day of redemption. You're held tight in that righteous right hand of God. But another thing that this does invariably leads to legalism. Because if it's, in, if it's up to me, then my goodness, I better get this right. And so those of us that tend to believe that way, we become legalistic not only toward ourselves, but toward others. But what about the other extreme? If I go the other extreme and humanity plays no part, then the liability for condemnation is solely on God. What kind of God is that? Is he a God of love at all, that he would condemn some to hell for eternity? Maybe God is culpable for evil. Did he create this whole thing just to confuse us? Do we not have any stake in this? Are we just robots? And so invariably this leads not to legalism, but to fatalism and inaction. Because we begin to think it it doesn't matter what we do. So I want to look at this as we go through this passage in Romans 9, just for a few minutes. I want to ask four questions and then give you a few statements of application in our lives. How do we manage these truths in tension? And what does that mean about the hand of God? Romans 9, beginning in verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. So Here's what I just want to say before we blow past that verse. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what we believe and teach is that the Holy Spirit of God has indwelt you. As a result of that, that means when you are encountered with truth and falsehood, the Holy Spirit of God in you, God in you, either bears witness with the truth or shouts out in your inner being, alert, this is not true. And so you have that ability if you're a follower of Christ. Now, how do you develop that? You've gotten into God's Word. You're seeking to grow. You understand the Scriptures. You spend time with Him in prayer. But as a result of that, when you're in a church and you're hearing things that are taught that are not of God, you should hear that alert. Because the Holy Spirit of God in you does not bear witness with that. And when you begin to see God move, oh, you should just feel an inner urge.